So we're doing a series on the life of King David. It's kicking off this week, four weeks. And, um, and when we first meet King David, uh, we see that he is, uh, well, he's somewhere around 15 years old. And uh, give or take a few years. And then he, King David, as a teenager, as a young boy, is, is unexpectedly, unexpectedly chosen as the next king of Israel. And as a young shepherd boy, David has great confidence in God. He famously defeats the Philistine giant Goliath. And then David spends several years on the run. And while God has anointed him as the next king of Israel, his predecessor, King Saul, is still reigning as king. And Saul chases after David for several years, trying to kill him over and over again. At one point, David actually has an opportunity to take advantage and to kill Saul, and yet he refuses to do so because he does not want to dishonor God or his plans. David is often pointed to as an example of integrity. David's also known as a great leader. He becomes a powerful and successful military commander. Eventually, he becomes king of Israel. And he's known both biblically and historically, outside of biblical text, historians would say the same thing, that David was Israel's greatest king. You can go there to Israel today and still see remnants of people honoring David and his legacy. He recaptures Jerusalem, and he returns the Ark of the Covenant. And David just accomplished a lot. And as great as David was, he had some failures too. David had an affair. He tried to cover it up, and then he's confronted with his sin. And when confronted, David breaks, and he repents, and he cries out to God when he writes Psalm 51. David actually wrote many of the Psalms. In fact, maybe in the Psalms is where we, get the most, uh, we learn the most about David. And we're going to look at a few of those Psalms towards the end of the message here in just a few minutes. But probably, if you had to pick one phrase that is most often used to describe David, it's found in Acts chapter 13, verse 22. Here's what it says about David. After removing Saul, God, God, after God removed Saul, he made David their king. God testified concerning him. Here's Here's how God viewed David. I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. So David was a man after God's own heart. And we're going to spend the next four weeks kind of looking at his life and looking at some of the key moments in his life. But this morning, we're going to look at kind of what what made David a man after God's own heart. We're going to look at the story of when God rejected King Saul and chose David. Because by looking at what God rejected in Saul, we get a better understanding of why God chose David. And then we're going to spend a few minutes towards the end of our message, end of my message here, looking in the Psalms and talking about some key Psalms that maybe we can pray together in our own lives. We're going to be looking in 1 Samuel chapter 15. If you have your Bibles or if you want to grab one underneath you, turn to 1 Samuel, Samuel chapter 15. I'm going to pray before we go any further. Father, thank you so much for your love and your grace and your goodness. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for what you're doing in the life of this church. And I'm thankful for King David. And I'm thankful for so many of the Psalms. I'm thankful for uh, the story of his life. And most of all, I'm, I'm thankful for your faithfulness in his life. Lord, we're all in different places in our relationship with you here this morning. Would you encourage our hearts where we need encouragement? Would you correct our hearts where we need correction Father, would you just, would you guide uh, us? Would you, Holy Spirit, open our ears to let us hear your voice, open our eyes so we can see. We want to we wanna get this morning that thing that you have for each one of us. Most of all, I want Jesus, I want you to be glorified. So Jesus, let me pray this in your name. Amen. 
The first book of Samuel describes the transition of leadership in Israel from the period of the judges to the period of kings. Now, there are three prominent characters in the book of 1 Samuel. Samuel, as you might imagine, Saul, and David. Samuel was the last judge and the first great prophet in Israel, and his prophetic ministry led to revival in Israel and eventually the defeat of the Philistines. But when Samuel was old, the Israelites wrongly cry out for a king. They want to be like like all the other nations around them who had kings, and so so they choose a king for themselves, and it's really not not God's best for them. They choose less than God's best. That man's name is Saul. King Saul started out as a good king. First part of his life, I mean, first part of his reign looked good, but, but things didn't go so well. Along the way, Saul drifted from the Lord, and it's, things kind of started getting ugly. A major turning point in his reign as king is a specific instance of disobedience. And that's what we're going to pick up in the story here today. Here's what happens. God comes through Samuel, because Samuel's the, Samuel's the prophet, and he's going to speak to Saul. And Samuel kind of played a role of a mentor to Saul. And Samuel comes to Saul and gives him assignment. He says this. He says, God wants you to destroy a group of the, 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 the Amalekites. It's a group of people called the Amalekites. The Amalekites were evil people, right? They, 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 uh, they had attacked God's people, the Israelites. And now God wanted Saul and his, his Israelite army to destroy the Amalekites. And not just to destroy them, but God tells uh, uh, Saul to totally destroy them. Most scholars say it, it, it's this idea of completely wiping them out. That God wanted them, God didn't want them to spare anyone's life, and including their livestock. God wanted them to wipe out their livestock too. And this was, without going into a a, a kind of a sidebar, this is supposed to be a picture of God's judgment on sin and the severity of sin. And so Saul and his army destroy the Malachites. But the problem is, Saul spares their king, King Agag, and he spares some of their best livestock. So Saul obeys most of what God commanded, but he didn't completely obey God. He partially obeyed God. And in God's eyes, partial obedience is disobedience. Listen to how the Lord responds to Saul's partial obedience. Let's pick the story up. 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 9. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the cattle, the fat calves and the lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely. There's a key phrase there. They were unwilling to destroy completely. But everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. So God, here's how God's going to respond to this. I regret that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was angry and he cried out to the Lord all night. Now, look at that key phrase there. He has turned away from me. So, God tells Saul and his army to completely destroy the Malachites, but Saul and his army spare Agag and some of their best livestock. In God's eyes, their unwillingness to completely destroy everyone and everything revealed an unwillingness to completely obey the Lord. And it says that God regretted that Saul made that he had made Saul king. Now, this isn't like this isn't God saying that he made a mistake. God doesn't make mistakes. This is God grieving. God was grieved over Saul's disobedience. Samuel was grieved over Saul's disobedience. And notice how that the Lord specifically described King Saul's decision. He says, the Lord says that Saul has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. He's turned away from me and not carried out my instructions. That is such a great definition of sin. Sin is any time we turn away from God and selflessly insist on doing things our way. When we don't follow God's instructions. Now, here's what you got to remember about God's instructions. God's instructions are meant for our good. 
And so when God instructed them to wipe everything out, it was ultimately for their good and for his glory. But Saul did not trust that. Almost every night, my wife and I, when we give our, uh, our kids, uh, almost every night my wife and I give our kids the same set of instructions at bedtime. We have a bedtime routine. If you have little kids in the house, uh, you, 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 parents, you can relate to this, right? And so here are the basic instructions. We say this every night. <laughs> I've, I've, in case you don't know, I have four kids, uh, almost seven, five, three, and almost one. Every night, take a bath, brush your teeth, go potty. And get in bed, and when you get in bed, lay your head down on the pillow. We give them these simple instructions, and we want them to follow our instructions. Why do we want them to follow our instructions? Because we know that taking a bath for them is good. It's good for them to be clean, and they're likely going to sleep better if they are clean. Brush your teeth, because brushing your teeth will help uh, keep your teeth healthy and will potentially save you uh, physical pain, financial pain, and headache in the future. Use the potty, because if not, when you're like me and 41 years old, you'll wake up in the middle of the night and you'll have to go to the bathroom. Lay your head on the pillow. And instead of sitting up and playing in your bed, instead of sitting up and playing in your bed, don't, don't get distracted. Just lay your head down on your pillow. Because if you lay your head on your pillow, it's a nice little trick. If you've got little kids and you're just entering this phase, get them to lay their head on the pillow. Can I get an amen? Lay that head on the pillow. I come in, they're sitting up. No, no, no. Lay that head on the pillow. Some moms are shaking their heads. Um, Lay your head on the pillow because then you're going to fall asleep sooner and faster and you'll get a better night's rest. And a good night's rest will make, uh, will make for a much more enjoyable day tomorrow for both you and for your parents. So right, we give them these instructions and we want them to follow these instructions because we want what's best for them. And every little instruction has something good for them and for mom and dad in it, Right? Well, God has given us instructions in the Bible. He wants us to follow them because he knows what's best for us. He wants what's best for us. And when we sin, when we turn away from God and we selfishly insist on doing things our way, it, it leads to brokenness. Sin always, always, always leads to brokenness and death. And sin is always hurtful. Sin is always hurtful. It's hurtful to God, hurtful to us, hurtful to others. So Saul had sinned against God. And so Samuel confronts Saul. And Saul ask, uh, Samuel asks uh, Saul, he goes to him, so Samuel says, why did, you, why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you disobey? Now listen to Saul's response in verse 20. But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. Sounds like my kids. But I did. No, no, no. Okay, I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Malachites and brought back Agag their king. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Now, Saul's like, I don't understand why you're so upset. I didn't do anything wrong. But the truth is, what Saul's doing here. Uh, he's, he's starting to spin the story a bit. He says, hey, I brought back their king and their livestock I spared. It was the best livestock, by the way. I spared the best, best livestock. And then he adds something in there that God never told him to do. And I, I, I spared it so I could sacrifice it to the Lord. And so a sacrifice was an act of worship. And so, so God didn't tell Saul to do this, but Saul's trying to spin this sin into a positive thing, saying, hey, no, I did this, I, I did this for you. We often do the same thing, right? We try to spin sin into our something positive in our life. But listen to Samuel's response. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? Like, I know you made that sacrifice, but that's not what God asked you to do. You didn't do what God asked you to do. He goes on to say, To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. 
Where am I? Oh, keep going. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, here it is. Everything for Saul comes crashing down. He has rejected you as king. So this is the moment when God says, I'm now rejecting you, Saul, as king, and I'm going to replace you because of your disobedience. I like the way the New Living Translation reads here. Let's just read it again. Same passage, different translation. What is more pleasing to the Lord? Samuel asked Saul. Your burnt offerings and sacrifices or your obedience to his voice? Listen, obedience is better than sacrifice. And I love this. I love this word. And submission is better than the offering of uh, the fat of rams. Samuel is saying, listen, the Lord delights in obedience more than sacrifice. To obey is better than sacrifice. A, a sacrifice was an external act of worship. Now, a proper sacrifice was an outward expression of an inward devotion. See, God delights not just in an act of worship, but in a heart of worship. This is why Jesus was always rebu rebuking the Pharisees throughout his ministry. He was always telling them, you all do all this external religious stuff in, in, in the name of honoring God, but you don't have the love of God in your hearts. I care about what's in your hearts, not about this outward appearance. God wants our hearts that love him, and he wants us to express our love to him through obedience and submission because obedience and submission are matters of the heart. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God? to walk in obedience to him, to love him, and to serve the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul. Saul would have known this. This was a passage that Saul would have known and he would have been disobedient to. God wants us to trust him and to love him with all of our hearts, to fully surrender to him, to entrust our lives to him. That's why God ultimately rejected Saul. Saul's heart was not fully surrendered to God. Saul's obedience is often referred to as incomplete or half-hearted obedience. This means Saul's submission, his love, his devotion to God was half-hearted. And so God rejects Saul because of his half-hearted obedience. And God's rejection of Saul, again, helps us better understand why he accepted and chose David. Let's keep reading. Verse 35. Until, this, until the day Samuel died, he did not go to see Saul again, though Samuel mourned for him. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. So both of them are mourning. Now let's pick up chapter 16, verse 1. But then the Lord comes to Samuel and says, Hey, Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul? Since I have rejected him as king over Israel, fill your horn with oil and be on your way. He says, listen, get over it. We need to move forward. I am sending you, here we go, I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be the next king. And so Saul's, uh, Samuel's grieving, but God had a plan. And God's ready to move forward and accomplish his plans. And God tells Samuel, go to Bethlehem, and you're going to see a guy named Jesse. I'm going to choose one of his sons to be king. Now, Samuel's not sure this, this is a very good idea. See, King Saul was known to be very suspicious. And Samuel's worried that if he goes to choose the next king, Saul's uh, uh, next king, if he goes to try to choose Saul's successor, Saul's going to get word of this, and he's going to want to put a stop to it. But the Lord reassures Samuel, and he says, I'll show you what to do. Trust me and follow my leadership. Samuel obeys God. Uh, let's uh, go to verse 2 and 3. Do we, do we look at that? Mickey? There we go. Okay, I don't think I skipped this. Let's read this. But Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul's here about it, he hears about it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Verse 3. Invite Jesse. Here we go. There's the guy. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I'll show you what to do. You are to anoint 
for me the one I indicate. So Saul, Samuel's a little concerned of that, that word's going to spread that, that Saul will find out about this. And God says to Samuel, hey, listen, don't worry about that. Follow my leadership. I'll show you what to do. Maybe you need to hear that this morning. Follow God's leadership. He'll show you what to do. It's a great way to just remind yourself, remind your heart, remind your, your mind today. Be reminded today that one of the best ways to follow God is just to let him show you what he's going to do. And so Samuel, Samuel obeys. He gives him one step, one step at a time. This is progressive revelation. God's revealing to Samuel one step at a time. Obey that step. God will provide another step for you after that. And so Samuel shows up. Uh, uh, let's pick up verse, verse 4. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? Samuel rep replied, yes, in peace. I've come to sacrifice the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So he shows up. Remember, sacrifice is worship. So they basically say, hey, let's go, uh, let's go to church together. And that's not really what they said, but they said, we're going to go before the Lord. Okay, and so the guys know when they show up that Samuel's there to do something uh, that the Lord wants him to do. Okay, and so... When they arrive, so you have Samuel, you have the town elders, and you have Jesse and his sons. They're all there. That's who's there in this scene, okay? When they arrive, Samuel thinks he immediately sees the one, which of the sons that God's going to choose. Look at verse 6. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. Now, while we don't know what Jesse's oldest son, Eliab, looked like, right away we get the feeling that Samuel was impressed with his outward appearance, right? And we do the same thing. We are so easily impressed with outward appearances. But just like Samuel, when we are, it's a mistake. It's a mistake to be impressed with outward appearances. Because in verse 7 we're told, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at, but people, people look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. If you're going to take notes, you're going to write anything down, write this down. People look at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. We live in a world and a culture that is so enamored with outward appearances. We value and celebrate outward appearance. We care about outward appearance, but God doesn't care. Because God looks at the heart. We care so much about physical beauty. But have you ever stopped to consider this? Have you ever thought that, and come to, ever, ever considered this? Physical beauty has zero eternal value. There is zero eternal value to physical beauty. In fact, if I can just get on a soapbox for about 30 seconds here, can we stop making our number one compliment of children? You're so cute. You're so pretty. Okay. Just bear with me. I got the mic. Uh, here's the thing. I have three, little, three of my four children are girls. And I think my little girls, I'm sure like most parents do, I think they're physically very cute and attractive. But I watch over and over and over again how everyone's first compliment oftentimes to my little seven-year-old, my little five-year-old is, you're so cute, you're so pretty. What seed are we planting in our children's hearts when the only compliment, the first compliment that we always give them is, you're so pretty, you're so cute? We're planting in them, we're telling them that we value this as a culture. 
We value your physical attraction. And listen, I get it. Listen, I get it. I tell them they're cute all the time. I just saw my son today, uh, my, my little uh, one-year-old today. She's smiling. I'm like, oh, you're so cute. They are. But can we work real hard as a church family on getting better at complimenting our children, specifically complimenting our children in things other than just their physical beauty? Because their physical beauty has no eternal value. And they're never going to find anything in the scriptures that is going to tell them that their physical beauty has some kind of value in God's sight. In fact, they'll see the exact opposite. Find something other than a child's physical appearance to compliment them on. And listen, some of you in here, I'll just get really candid here. Some of you in here, adults, you are physically, you would, you would be what the world would say is physically attractive. And so most of your life, uh, people have maybe told you you're physically attractive. You've gotten compliments because of your physical attraction. I want you to know, there's nothing wrong with being physically attracted, attractive. But God doesn't look at that. He looks at the heart. Some of you, you've never had anyone compliment you about your physical appearance. I want you to know, it's okay. God doesn't care about that. He looks at your heart. Maybe you don't dress well. Maybe you don't, maybe you don't have the most stylish clothes. It's okay. God doesn't look at that. He looks at your heart. Maybe you don't have the most charming personality. We have idolized personality in our culture. Maybe you don't have the most charming, outgoing personality. Maybe you don't have the most winsome sense of humor. If that's you, it's okay. God doesn't look at that. He looks at your heart. Maybe, you, maybe you're not the greatest communicator, and you're not good with words. You're not quick-witted. quick-witted. It's okay. God doesn't look at that. He looks at your heart. Maybe, you're very, maybe you would sit here today and you'd say, you know what? I've never been complimented much on my talent. I'm not very talented. Our culture idolizes talent. Talented in sports, talented in the arts, talented in business. Talent, 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 talent. Listen, God is the one who gives us those talents, but God never intends for any talents or gifts of his to become an idol to be worshipped. But that's what our culture does. That's what the world does. That's what the enemy wants. He wants to take gifts of God and make those gifts the thing you worship instead of what God says to worship. And so if you've never been told that you're really talented or you don't feel like you have a lot of tangible talents that you see other people around you have, guess what? It's okay. God doesn't care about how talented you are. He cares about your heart. He's looking at your heart. And listen, there's nothing really inherently wrong with those characteristics, physical physical beauty, a charming personality, or talent. King David is actually described as having some of those very same characteristics. And so if you have some of those characteristics this morning, I'm not... I'm not criticizing you. I'm not condemning you. Uh, many of you have those characteristics, and that's okay. God, God gave those to you. But just be reminded this morning that those are not the characteristics that God was looking at in David's life, and they're not the characteristics that God is looking at in your life either. God looks at the heart. We need to be focused on and concerned about the heart. All right, let's finish this story because uh, I'm running out of time. Okay, then Jesse said, the, uh, so then, so, uh, okay, so let me set this up. So Samuel goes, and so God says, I'm going to go uh, choose the next king. He's going to be one of this guy. This guy named Jesse. He's in Bethlehem. It's going to be one of his sons. And Samuel goes, okay, and he shows up. And Samuel assumes, wrongly assumes, that the first one he sees, he sees this outward appearance, and he goes, that's surely going to be the one that God chooses. And God says to him, no, Samuel, you're wrong. Uh, You look at the outward appearance. I look at the heart. And so Samuel goes, okay. Well, let's get the other sons. And so then Jesse called Abinadab, that guy, and had him pass in front of Samuel uh, just because you're a pastor doesn't mean you know how to pronounce all the words. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Then Jesse then, then had uh, Shema pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. 
But Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen any of these. Now, uh, let's keep reading. So he asked Jesse, are, all, are these all the sons you have? You've got to imagine Samuel's feeling a little uncomfortable at this point, right? Because God said, I'm going to go choose one of, this, one of these guys' sons. And he, all seven sons passed through. And Samuel's like, uh, is this it? Because God's not choosing any of these. And so you've got to be thinking, you a little confused maybe. And then, and then listen to how Jesse answers. Poor David. There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep. He doesn't even give his name. What a great dad. Uh, uh, Samuel said, well, that's the reason we're not studying Jesse for fatherhood. Uh, Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. And, uh, okay, so all seven of Jesse's sons passed before Samuel, oldest to youngest. But the Lord doesn't choose any of them. And this is obviously a problem. And so, so Samuel says, you got any more? And Jesse says, well, i got one more. And so he goes to get him and look at verse 12. So he sent for him, and he had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. He's got some nice features. <laughs> then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, from that day on the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. And then Samuel went to Ramah. End of our story. So they send for David. Sure enough, he's the one. Now I just want you to imagine if you're David, right? You've been out in the fields tending sheep. You're a teenager, probably 15 maybe, maybe a little bit younger. You have no idea what's been unfolding with your dad and your brothers. They didn't bother to invite you to come along. You show up, and here in the presence of the town elders, in the presence of your seven older brothers, in the presence of your dad who just clearly overlooked you, this man of God, Samuel, comes and anoints your head with oil and chooses you to be the next king of Israel, the unlikely next king. That's amazing. That's an amazing start to David's story. He's got an incredible story. Over the next few weeks, we're going to take a deeper look at a few of the key moments in his life. But here's what I want you to remember today. Acts 13.22 tells us why God chose David. After removing Saul, he made David their king. God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Here's my question I'm going to spend the next last few minutes on. When God looked at David's heart, what did he see? When God looked at David's heart, what did he see? This is a... This is my uh, prayer journal. So um, for the last probably, I don't know, 2000, probably for the last 10 years, um, I've been using journals, uh, and I write my prayers out. And um, so almost every time, not every time, but almost every time I go to spend some time alone with the Lord, I'll, I grab my journal, and, and I, just, I just write. I find it to be extremely helpful. Number one, it helps me focus my thoughts. I don't know about you, but when I sit down to pray, my mind gets distracted. I think about all kinds of weird things, and um, you do too. You know you do. And, um, and so the writing helps me focus my thoughts. Uh, it also helps me keep a record of what God's doing. Uh, and so I'm able to go back through weeks or months or even years and just review and see the patterns that God is doing in my life. If you've never journaled before, you may not be a writer. You may think, oh, that's not something I do. If you can write with a pen, you can journal, okay? So, uh, and you know how to spell basic words, you know, you can write, you can journal. I would encourage you to consider doing that. Um, if you were to flip through these journals, 
first, you'd be very concerned that I'm one of your pastors. <laughs> uh, you'd go, whew, this guy is messed up. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> but one of the things you would do, one of the things you get to learn about is what I pray about, and then one of the things you would learn from my prayers is my heart. And you discover some things about Kevin's heart. Some ugly things, some things I'm not proud of, and some things I'm so thankful that God has, uh, desires God has put on my heart uh, over the last 15, 16 years I've walked with him. And so the reason I show you that is because the Psalms are really David's prayer journals. And it's important to think about that because really our prayers reveal our heart. It's kind of a little self-checkup here to do this morning. Your prayer life reveals your heart for God. I, I, don't know how, I don't know how that's not true. I thought about that this week. I bounced it off a couple of people. I'm like, that doesn't say anywhere in the Bible, but is this true? I, I think this is true, at least in my opinion. It's my conviction. Your prayer life is a really good indicator of what kind of heart you have for God. So if you want to know if you have a heart for God, examine your prayer life. So let's examine David's prayer life. We have just a few minutes. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to roll through these really fast. But as I roll through David's prayers here, we're going to look at several psalms. Here's what I want you to do. We're going to look at David's prayers. I want you to listen and read along, and I want you to ask the Lord, Lord, is one of these prayers a prayer that I need to pray for myself? Which of David's prayers do you need to make your prayer today? Okay? Let's do that. First, uh, let's look, uh, just, we're going to look at a handful of them really quickly. Psalm 51. So David wrote this psalm after he had committed adultery. Verse 1 and 2. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Let's pause right there. Just think about this. What does that reveal about, God, about David's heart and what God saw in his heart? Have you ever messed up? I mean, messed up big. We, we all do. The Bible says we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. David had messed up big time. But why God, why David was a model, an example for us, is that after he messed up, he cried out to God. He knew where to go. He knew where to turn. And listen to him. He says, have mercy on me, God. He says, blot out my transgressions. Wash away my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Do you hear a broken heart, a humble heart, a teachable heart? This is the kind of heart... David had. You go on a little bit later in that same psalm, that same prayer, verse 16 to 17. David says this, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. I wonder if he learned that from Saul years earlier, right? Like he remembered that old Saul debacle and now that didn't go well for Saul. And so he says, I know you don't delight in sacrifice. I know you don't delight in the outward thing or I would bring it. You don't take pleasure in burnt offerings. It's not the religious activity. Not the act of worship that God longs for. He wants a heart of worship. And he says, my sacrifice, what I bring you, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, God, you will not despise. Maybe you're in a place right now in your walk with God, and you need, to, you need to get broken before God. And you need to come, and you pray Psalm 51. And say, Lord, I'm bringing you a broken and contrite heart. I, I, I'm asking you, forgive me. And, and, and forgive me because I... I I want your mercy and your unfailing love, right? How about Psalm 63? I love this. I've been meditating on this one for years. This is so good. You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. I just want to, I want, I want you to catch the yous here. You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you. Do you see that 
David's heart treasured God. The heart, the, the treasure in David's heart, the thing that his heart most treasured was God. Isn't that beautiful? And I love, he says this, I love this phrase, in a dry and parched land where there is no water. Listen, this world is a dry and parched land where there is no water. David is saying, there's nothing in this world that is going to bring me satisfaction like you. In fact, let's keep reading. Verse 2. David says, I've seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and glory. David is saying, I, I, I've, I've experienced your presence, God. I've experienced your presence in my life. Because, here we go, your love is better than life. What? I, what? I still can't get over this. Because David says, your love is better than life. My lips will glorify you. Oh, I long to be able to say that. And I, I, you know, I mean, there, there are moments, maybe you're like me, there are, there, maybe you have moments, you have hours, or you have days where you can say, God, your love is better than life. But, 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 but I, I don't know about you, I, candidly, I can't, I can't say that yet. I can't say that to the Lord just yet. I can't say that, that by and large my whole life I would look at God and I would say, God, your love is better than anything this life has to offer. I've so tasted your love. I've so experienced your love. I so believe in your love. I've so grasped your love. I've wrapped my arms around your love. I've so taken hold of your love that I've realized your love is better than anything in life. That's what David's saying there. It's amazing. I hope you think that it's too. Okay, uh, verse four. We, I gotta keep going. Uh, I will praise you as long as I live. I'll praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. I will be fully satisfied. There's it again. I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. I, I, listen, I will be fully satisfied. Uh, heart check. Are you fully satisfied in God? I, I, I'm not. I just want to confess. I'm not. I, I, I want, I, I still be, I, I'm still not satisfied in God. Let's, but I'm praying it. I'm going to pray it. I'm going to pray it. I will be. I love, it. I love how he says, I will. I will. It's almost as if David is kind of preaching to his heart. I love that. He's saying, I will praise you as long as I live. I will be fully satisfied. And I'm saying this right now in my own life. And just join me. Pray this. Maybe you want to pray this with me. Uh, is make this your prayer. Lord, I want to be fully satisfied in you. I want you to bring my satisfaction in my life. Not the things you can give me, not the things that I want from you, but you, just you. Oh, man. This is why David was a man after God's own heart. All right, uh, Psalm 86, verse 11 and 12. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I rely on your faithfulness. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. I will praise you, Lord my God, with all my heart. I will glorify your name forever. A couple things I want to point out. Number one, what a great prayer to pray. Teach me your way, O Lord, and give me an undivided heart. Maybe you're sitting here this morning, and you would be really candid. Uh, and this is probably often most of us, and we'd say, hey, I have a divided heart. I got a divided heart. I do love God. I really like my way and my, my things and, and the things of this world, too. Guess what? It's okay to confess that. It's okay. It's, bring it into the light and say, Lord, I have a divided heart. I confess it to you, but I want to repent. And so one of the things I want to do is I want to start praying this. So maybe you would start praying today, Lord, give me an undivided heart. Listen, when you pray these prayers in the Psalms, they're the very prayers that the Holy Spirit will say yes to. You are agreeing. When you line your prayers and your heart with God's word, you are agreeing with God in heaven. I'm telling you, you be persistent in praying these prayers, the Lord will answer them. 
These are yes prayers. There's a lot of prayers that we pray that God says no to or God answers differently than we want. You ask him for an undivided heart, he'll say, okay, I'll give it to you. And he'll work that out in your life in the coming weeks and months. And for me, it's been years. Okay, uh, I, will, I will glorify your name forever. Look at this. David says, I will glorify your name forever. I will glorify, I will show everyone in my life how awesome you are. What a great heart. Do you see, what, do you see this kind of heart that David had? This is unbelievable. I want that kind of heart. I want that kind of heart for myself. I want that for my children. I want that for us as a church family. All right, uh, Psalm 119. I'm, I'm over time. Oh, let me just read it. Okay, uh, Psalm 119, real quick. Teach me, your, teach me, Lord, the way of your decrees, that I may follow it to the end. Give me understanding so that I may keep your law and obey it with all of my heart. Direct me in the path of your commands, to, for there I find delight. David delighted in God's word. His heart treasured and, and, and just he loved God's word and God's commands. He delighted in them. Verse 36 and 37, great prayers. Turn my heart toward your statutes and not toward selfish gain. Here's an, I love this one. Turn my eyes away from worthless things. I, I, I Just pray that. Lord, turn my eyes away from worthless things. Pray that for your children. Oh, parents, if you have teenagers, or if they're, it doesn't matter how old they are, you can turn your, but specifically, if you've got uh, uh, kids who are, are going into the teen years or in their teen years, oh, get on your knees and beg God to turn their eyes away from worthless things. Beg the Lord to turn their eyes away from worthless things because their eyes, the world is throwing so many things in front of their eyes that are worthless. All right, uh, Psalm 27.4. Here's how we're going to end. Uh, the band's going to come out. Okay, I'm going to give you just a quick minute, and uh, they're going to play some music, and I want to give you a minute to pray right here. I want you to respond to the Lord. And maybe one of the prayers of the Psalms we've just covered, you would say, I need to pray that. But if, of all the Psalms we've covered so far, you would say, well, I'm not sure which one I should pray. I'm going to turn your attention to this one, Psalm 27.4. This has been the number one prayer in my life for eight years. In January of 2010, I put this on the top of my prayer list and started praying it. I prayed this for my wife. I prayed this for my children. I prayed this for the, some of the guys in my life. And I'm telling you, the Lord has answered this prayer. You want to pray a powerful prayer and see God move in your life, pray Psalm 27.4. King David says, one thing I ask from the Lord. This only do I seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. David had, this was his number one prayer and number one pursuit. I want you to see it in the text. The number one thing I ask from the Lord, that was his number one prayer. This only do I seek. That was his number one pursuit. The number one prayer and pursuit of David's heart was to dwell in the presence of God, was to abide in God, abide in Christ, to walk daily in close, intimate relationship with God.